Good morning, Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. Going to tackle a couple of different topics. To start off, I'm going to go back to the topic two weeks ago, which was winterizing your tarantulas. You're getting tarantulas ready for winter because I did ask some folks to respond, and I think some of the comments are actually quite interesting and contain some really important information in them. So, for example, uh, one from Josh Oden, who I've actually corresponded with Josh for a while now. He was the one that got me the predatory mites. Really good guy, really smart guy, has a lot of experience, has actually spent time in Costa Rica and has seen some of the tarantulas that I talk about in the wild, which is something I can't claim. And it also appears he lives in Texas, so he gets to see them in the wild there. Again, something I can't claim in Connecticut. It's too cold for him. We don't get them. But one of the things he mentioned and I think it's really important for us to think about when we start panicking around wintertime about our tarantulas getting too cold. So in his comment, he goes on to say that I've seen wandering males out in Texas in 40 to 50 degree nighttime weather and regularly saw Costa Rican species in 50 to 55 night, 65 to 75 daytime temps. And that's one of the things I mentioned in the article before, before you panic, check out where some of these guys come from. The temperatures drop quite a bit, and they do fine. So think about it. 50 to 55 degrees, if your tarantula room got down to 50, 55 degrees, most people would be panicking. What do I do? Do I get another heat source? Uh, are they going to die? And there are species that are out walking around it like it's nothing. They don't deal with temperatures or low temperatures the way we do, and that's important to consider. And then the Costa Rican species. Again, we think of Costa Rica as being completely... Uh, hot and, and humid and the reality is they have different types of weather in different areas some of the more mountainous areas it's cooler and 60 to 60, 75 is actually what most of us would have for a normal room temperature 50 55 again much lower so something to consider he also mentions which i've mentioned in previous articles but i don't think i mentioned yesterday or the last time i did one on this subject uh, of note, inside burrow temps are nearly always 68 to 72 anywhere in the world, any time of the year in my experience. So that's one I've always wondered about, and I really appreciate that bit, Josh, because I've talked about the burrows being the X factor for many, many years. When people do the husbandry sheets and the care sheets, which drive me nuts, they always put the ideal humidity, ideal temperature. And it's usually in the higher end. So, uh, for example, the other day I was reading something on P. Muticus, and it was talking about how it's super dry there, and they require really high temperatures. And I believe they said the ideal temperature for this species was 85 degrees, which is on the high end for most people in their tarantula rooms. They usually don't get that high. Well, what we forget is the P. Muticus burrows. They burrow very deeply in the wild. That's something to keep in mind. And if that's the case, then we're talking about a spider that is spends the majority of its time in its burrow, and the burrow is around 68 to 72 degrees. So if anything is an ideal temperature for tarantulas, especially ones that burrow during the daytime or nighttime, it seems like it would be in the 68, 70 range. But again, there's no real ideal. We don't know what they're most comfortable at. The good thing about burrows is they can dig and find the appropriate level for them. So thanks so much for that, Josh. That's um, excellent, excellent feedback to this and the type of stuff I look for when I do the podcast and videos because I, I don't know everything and I do like hearing from people that have more experience in these areas than I do to find out you know the burrow thing has been something that's bothered me for quite some time and I never got a clear answer on it so to know that it's around that 68 to 72 mark is really validating in, in many ways because I've argued for years that those ideal temperatures are probably a bit high and here we go if that's where it's living that's probably around its ideal temperature so anyway just something to uh, think about 
He also mentioned that his spider room dips to 67 to 69 every night and is rarely above 75. And that's another thing that came up in these comments. We have one from Rockhound says that it can be I keep the house between 68 and 72. So again, in the 60s. We had somebody else, as, as I'm scrolling through here, trying to find it, that I believe had even lower temperatures. Um, 65 right here, Zach Hess. I keep my room 65, 75 range. So that's mid-60s. So again, I think, and thanks everybody that responded to this, because one of the big things in the hobby that we don't talk about very much, and I think people are afraid to mention, is we put up these ideas that they can't be kept any less than 70 degrees or we do the room temperature thing, but we there's no real way to measure that. We, there's no re- real way to recognize exactly what temperatures they're most comfortable at. And I think a lot of times we're afraid to mention in public that we might keep them on the cooler end because people tend to freak out. There was a comment on one of my YouTube videos. It was a while back and somebody said, oh, I keep mine. Mine went down the 63 the other night. And somebody jumped all over me. You need to get a heater in there. You need to get a heat mat. Well, it was a Gramostola species that probably would have done just fine if it had dropped even lower into the 50s. So that's not true. So I do think we, we try to be good caregivers for these animals. And I think as humans and as mammals, when it gets too chilly in a room, we are uncomfortable. And we immediately kind of apply that to our, our spiders. We think, all right, it's like 62 degrees in here. It's chilly as heck. My tarantula is probably going to die because it's going to get too chilly and it can't put on extra clothes like I'm doing or comfy slippers or sweats or whatever it may be. We panic because we're kind of applying what's happening to us to the spiders. That's not really a fair comparison. Also, we should talk about the fact that uh, one of the big fears is a power outage when it gets cold. And I've had many panicked emails from keepers who have lost power during rather cold snaps and they're terrible, terribly afraid that they're going to lose their tarantulas. And one of the things Josh does out, Josh, that you're basically guest starring on this show, so I appreciate it. He mentioned that he's had species such as P. Armenia and A. geniculata sling survive 12 to 24 hour power outages in winters, yielding temps as low as 38 degrees. So the spiders were very sluggish until warm. Um, so that's basically proof right there that they can survive shorter time periods with being very cold. And anybody that's shipped in the winter, I mean, unfortunately, there are mishaps. I've had things where heat packs have failed. I had a situation where somebody didn't include a heat pack and it dropped down to 20 degrees. And believe it or not, the spiders survived. They were cold. They were incredibly sluggish, but they can survive some of those drops. So if you lose power... Don't go panicking yet. I mean, if it's something where it's a big blizzard and it knocks power out and the pipes are going to freeze and everything else and it's going to be super cold in there for quite a few days, yes, you're probably going to have to figure out some way to try to move your collection for the time being. We had I talked to one gentleman years ago that lost power during a snowstorm and they basically rented a room in a hotel down the street and moved his tarantula collection to the hotel until everything was the power was back on and the heat was back on. And granted, it was a smaller collection. I, Billy and I talked about this years ago when I started getting up around you know 75 or so that it would be impossible to locate all of these. You know, if, if it got really cold in here or if we lost power, so we ended up getting a generator hooked up just in case because I'm not going to go through the stress of having you know four days with no power and we've had it happen before. So just keep in mind that if your power goes out for like a few hours and it dips down, it usually you know. It takes a while for it to get as cold as it is or anywhere near as cold as it is outside. So you have some time to play around with it. But if it happens for a day, as long as it doesn't hit freezing, you should be fine. And keep in mind, for those of you out there that have been contacting me, hey, my, my temps in my house are only you know 60s 
Is that too cold? No, in most cases, probably not. We have quite a few people that have responded that keep them in the 60s, even in the mid-60s with no problems. Again, what you you may get is slower growth rate than some people, and that's something that I'm perfectly okay with. I know a lot, a lot of hobbyists, as long as they have some patience, are perfectly okay with some slower growth rate. It, it's not bad for the spider. In fact, you're probably going to have it longer. So that's really the only quote-unquote negative consequence you would have from keeping them a little bit cooler. So again, to recap, as winter comes, don't panic. There's not a lot you need to do. The biggest issue I find with winter is the fact that things evaporate much more quickly because the heaters are running, the fires are going, it's drying out the air, which dries out the enclosure super fast. I have my humidifier going in my transfer room as we speak, keeping the humidity right around 45% or so, according to my cheap digital um, hygrometer or whatever they're called. So it's not something you really have to freak out about. Just be cognizant of more than, you know, making sure that your moisture dependent species have moisture. And if it drops down to 63, 64, you're still in good shape. And I think this is something moving ahead when I start covering different spider species. I will be mentioning that, you know, normally I put it in the high 60s because I think what ends up happening is people see, well, it's it's 62, so I guess 58 won't be bad. And, and there is a point where you got to, you know, it's probably not particularly healthy for them to be that cool. Although, again, some of the Afonopelma, Gramostola species, they all endure uh, cold winters where the temperatures drop quite a bit, so they should be totally okay. But in future things, I'm going to reference more of the fact that room temperature into the 60s and 70s are completely fine. Somebody, I believe, contacted me the other day. He's kept for years, and it's usually in his tarantula room, low 60s. He has one little warmer corner where he puts slings, but that's about it. So these guys are really tough, and it's not even like we're putting them in conditions that they wouldn't see or experience in the wild because for many of these species, they would get those conditions. They would get stretches where it's in the 60s, and they'd be perfectly fine. All right, so for the next one, I've had quite a few questions lately. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's because they're back on the market. But uh, recently, Gramostola pulchra slings have been made available again, and they've been difficult to come by. Before that, there was a bunch of them imported from Europe. A lot of people picking them up, and it's been great because I have my uh, best beginner species tarantula list on YouTube, and I get a lot of people who chime in. I just got my first G pulchra sling. I'm so excited, and I do. I absolutely love hearing from people that are just getting into the hobby, and I love it even more when they contact me like three years later, like, hey, remember we, me? I had this. Now I have 250, which happens quite a bit. But I've been getting a lot of questions lately about the G. pulchra in the hobby not being G. pulchra. And this is one that I did some research on a while ago. So this isn't my information. It's stuff that I found online, reading a lot of stuff, reading the report, uh, the actual papers on the species that are involved. But here's what it comes down to. For years in the hobby, there's been the complaint that G. pulchra is a very, uh, Gramostola pulchra is a very difficult species to breed. And I've alluded to the fact when I've done my care videos on G. pulchra and my articles on G. pulchra that we need to start breeding more of these in the United States because what happens is we, we get an influx of slings from Europe. Somebody imports them. They're sold in pet shops. They're show, sold online. We get those. It takes years to grow these bad boys up. And by the time they get older, everybody that's attempting to breed them was having a hard time with them. There just weren't enough slings, uh, captive bred slings in the hobby to satisfy the demand for these guys. So it took a while for them to reappear. We got more in. And I'm like, all right, guys, we got to raise them up and breed them. You know, I'm hoping I've got one. I'm hoping to raise up. Maybe I get a female. We can get them in the hobby. But what was happening is one of the big complaints was that they were difficult to breed. They would put them in. They would get no sacks. It was very tricky business to get these guys to breed, which was odd because 
usually once a species is in the hobby for a while, people figure out the little tricks to get them to breed, and you get them in there. It's like GBBs or Greenball Blues were ones that were thought to be very difficult to breed for a while, and people have somehow figured it out because now we have plenty of slings, although they're very popular, so they're always in demand. But anyway, there was always this issue that they were difficult to breed. I've alluded to it. Well, what came out a couple of years ago or a few years back, maybe not even that long ago, is that apparently there were some issues with Uruguay complaining that species of a tarantula, there are species they have that's called Gramostola carogi. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Somebody's probably going to correct me. Carogi, carogi was being legal, illegally taken or taken from the country and shipped out into the pet trade. Now, where things get interesting is this was happening right along the time where the G pokers were coming over. They were showing up in the pet store. This isn't the recent one. This was a while back. And the Kurogai look identical to the Polkra. In fact, they, a lot of the papers on them basically describe the fact that there's no way really physically without examining the tibial hooks of the males of the species to differentiate the two species from each other. Now, the Kurogai or Kurogi or Kurogai is actually supposedly found in northern Uruguay. The Gramostola pulchra, on the other hand, is found in southern Brazil. Now, these are two entirely different species that look very, very similar. So think along the lines of Brachypelma hammeri and Brachypelma smithy. As far as the, the layman that just looks at these spiders is going to think they're the exact same spider. And supposedly, they do share a range but in one of the things I was reading, I was doing a lot of research on these guys, and even before this article, I went back and reread some stuff. But somebody had the two species in a laboratory, and although they basically mated, there was no egg sac produced. So adding to the mystery. So basically, the thought was that many of the species that we have in the hobby, a lot of the ones, at least in the United States, that we've been calling Gramostola pulchra, might be Kurogai. And that's, again, we have this happen quite a bit in the hobby where things are misidentified. Again, going back to the hammerized situation, for years we had a spider we thought was the smithy, and then come to find out the thing that had been sold, the species that had been sold into the hobby as smithy was actually being harvested from the region where the hammeri came from, which is why we had that switch. So does that mean every single person that bought a bee smithy in the hobby has a bee hammeri? No, and that's where the whole thing gets interesting, where people are having to start kind of examining their specimens and the molts to try to figure out exactly what they have. But it's figured the vast majority were probably hammeri. Well, now the thought is, and a lot of people are thinking, that the vast majority of tarantulas that came in under Gramostola pulchra, a Brazilian species, is actually Kurogai. And I think a lot of this came up again because the species where it was made available again as slings and with the scare that we had going on with the Brazilian species and the fact that it was made clear that I don't think Brazil had let any species legally be exported out of their country, that it was a better, it was more logical to assume that what we had been selling for years as the polka was actually the Kurogai. Now, does that mean there's not Gramostola polka out there? Well, again, we have to talk about, you know, there's, legalities, legality, you know, is it legal to pull any species out of Brazil? No, it's not. But then there's reality. Are there people going down to Brazil and smuggling things out? Yes. A lot of the stuff we have in hobby, in the hobby right now, that's well-established. Was it once, once upon a time, somebody snuck into Brazil 
and took out some breeding pairs. So to think that there aren't true G pulchra in the hobby, I think would be uh, would not be a correct statement to make. I'm sh- I, I'm my guess is that there are real ones in there. They probably originated in Europe. It seems to be that's where a lot of the species originate when they are pulled from the wild and they start breeding them. So I'm guessing there are probably pulchra out there. Am I positive about this? No, I'm not. But I, I would like to think that somewhere along the line, somebody pulled some poker out and we have them. But the question still remains, what is it people have been keeping in the hobby? And this is, I don't know if it's the same in Europe. I'm guessing that a lot of these probably came from Europe too. So it was probably the same over there. But it seemed like the majority of the large black spiders that were being exported and imported into other countries back in the day were actually the Kurogai. They were coming from Uruguay. So again, if you want to read about this, I would definitely encourage people. There's so much to cover on it, so many different opinions. And again, it's not a black and white issue. It's not something I can say definitively. This is what's going on. I want to make that very clear. I don't want to be misquoted and have people running around going, yep, nobody has a G poker. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm trying to explain where the confusion is coming from with these guys. So keep that in mind. Now we have uh, the thought process that a lot of the ones that were in the hobby were actually Kurogai. Let's consider then for a moment that some of the real true pulchra actually did make it over here. Maybe they were sold as slings over, imported the actual true pulchra from Brazil. Now we look at this issue, we have breeding them. The big issue was they weren't breeding, they were munching the males, they weren't you know, producing sacks. Then we find out that somebody apparently tried to mix these in a laboratory. I don't know whether it was on purpose or by accident. Again, you can find these comments on Arachnoboard. It was, it's a very interesting read. I also found some on another website talking about it. It's easy to conceive that the reason why we're having trouble breeding is because they were breeding two different species. And this was a rumor I had heard years ago. So I guess this was probably originally something that was brought up a while back because I believe when I first got my G. pulchra and was doing research on it, this was about five or six years ago, I had read some stuff saying that the reason why they were having such difficulty breeding them is they were actually trying to crossbreed two different species. And I'd made a mental note note of it, and I'd put a little note in my little, you know, I have a notebook that I keep when I'm doing all my research and everything, and just never got back to it. And it wasn't until later when this one started putting on some size and getting bigger that I revisited some of this stuff and then the new g pokers were available as slings in the hobby i'm like i should probably pick up another one because i'm pretty sure my other one's a male and i did more research into it and it popped up again and this time more currently with more information and more actually people quoting the original papers and some of the things that were written that show that this is a very cloudy issue we're not sure what we have in the hobby it is not unheard of and i know people that get into the tarantula hobby erroneously believe that we're like the driving force of all this like if we call a species something in the hobby then that's what it should be and that's not how it works that's actually the opposite of how it works the scientific community the people that are going out there doing the taxonomy for these guys that study them that study their you know the characteristics and label them write the papers those are the ones that are driving the names we don't drive the names we can call anything we want any scientific name we want it doesn't make it correct and it happens quite a bit there's been some discussion lately about acanthoscuria brocklehursti and acanthoscuria geniculata uh, the species that I purchased years ago, it was supposedly a Brocklehursti, and when doing research for that, discovered that it was basically something that was named incorrectly in the hobby. What we were calling Brocklehursti in the hobby was not a Brocklehursti at all. There's another species, Brocklehursti, doesn't look a thing like it, and most likely what we were looking at is a regional variant which that basically just had different sized stripes on its leg. It comes down to that, so it's almost like a color morph. It's the same species, and that was one that I remember 
writing up my paper for Tom's Big Spiders and putting something in there about that and having a lot of people contact me like, what do you mean I don't have a bronchohersi? What do you mean this is just a geniculata? So that's uh, unfortunately an issue in the hobby sometimes is we do get things confused. We have to rely on the people that are importing them to give us accurate information. We need to know where the original uh, parents were harvested from, which helps to determine what species it is. And a lot of times, unfortunately, if there's shadiness involved, sometimes things are made up. So, oh, no, these didn't come from Uruguay. They came from Brazil. And the next thing you know, we're calling it G. Polkor when it's actually a different species. So, again, to make it very clear, I'm not trying to create some mass hysteria out there and having everybody freaking out going, did I buy one? Here's here's the thing, and here's where it gets kind of funny. When the B. Hammeri situation happened, they, they changed the name of Hammeri, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm so excited, so upset now. I thought I had a Smithy. Well, the problem is you had the same species you thought you bought. It's just a different name. All the care guides, all the videos you've seen on YouTube, all the things that have been posted online, if the species was mislabeled for all those years, you have the species you thought you were getting in theory like everything you'd seen about it it just has a different name so let's keep that in perspective so before people start freaking out about the you know oh my gosh do I have an I, I can see it now I'm going to start getting pictures and everything that's fine because I do want to see pictures of it because there's supposedly a way you can tell them apart and we'll discuss that in a moment but I'm not trying to get people to freak out about it. you just need to be cognizant of it that the, the hobby as a whole is not the be-all end-all as far as tarantula names and everything we we love the hobby we love our spiders and we think we're very important in some ways we are but we have to remember that it's the scientific community that drives this stuff now if you're holding on to a spider right now that you picked up as a, a pulchra it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing you've got a spider that basically they have already said is almost indiscernible physically from the one you thought you bought the Kurogai and the pulchra are supposedly so close in appearance that you can't tell them apart just by looking at them. So you really haven't lost anything. And think about this way. I did a care guide on the G. Polkara a while back featuring my larger adult that could be a Kurogai. I'm not sure. Who knows? I'm trying to figure it out. Everybody that watched that and said, I love that spider. I want to get that spider. If you went out and bought one, probably got the same spider. It's just called a different name. They're very similar. So it's really, you're not losing anything. And it kind of like one of the funny things that happened after the Hammerai switch was the people that were all upset about it. And, oh my gosh, I don't now i got to find a real smithy. I've wanted this spider for years. Well, the thing you've been looking at is the thing you got. The species you were looking at and admiring is what you got. It's just the name change. So let's keep that in perspective. Now, as far as telling them apart... A couple things that came up in a, a couple different places is supposedly when the Kurogai are getting ready to molt, when they go into pre-molt, they get a brown look to them, like a, a, a drab, dark brown look to them. And the Polkra, on the other hand, just gray out a bit. It's more of a dark gray. So again, I this is by no means scientific identification. But it did come up several times, and there were people, if you go back and look at some old posts, that would post pictures up of their G-Pokers, or supposed G-Pokers, before molt, and they were looking brown, and people were like, oh, it looks kind of brown, oh, don't worry, once you molt, you'll turn jet black. So I think that got a lot of people, you know, taking pictures of their spiders, trying to figure out what exactly they had. The other thing that sometimes comes up with these, and, and I hadn't heard this one mentioned, I was trying to find where I'd originally seen it mentioned, and I know with talking to people, it had always been... A curious issue for me. There's been a disparity in growth rates from specimen to specimen. Now, I just did a video on Rocky Pelmas, and we we're talking about albopelosum, and I said how my albopelosum grow rather slowly. 
And I'll, I said, I mentioned that other people I've talked to have albopolosums that will go from a tiny sling to like three and a half inches in a year, which blows my mind because mine grew very, very slowly. So that is a species that depending on the temperatures, I guess some people, it seemed like the people that were getting the, the most growth out of them and the fastest growth rate were ones that were in places where it was kind of warm all year round, dry weather. Now, I picked up my G Polka. It's been, it was an incredibly slow growing. I think I've had six years now. She's about four inch or he's about four inches or so, maybe just slightly over four inches. So very, very slow growth rate. It's currently on the highest uh, shelf in my tarantula room that hits around 78 degrees or so at times. So it's in a warm section. It's just grown quite slowly. Now, I talked to somebody not that long ago who picked up a G Polka. And she sent photos of the molts that it had had over the last year. That thing had gone from about a half an inch to the same size as mine in a year. That's mind-boggling to me. And I talked to other people who had reported theirs had grown super fast. So, again, I point to the fact that in the case of the albopolosum, there seems to be differences in the growth rate. Now, this is a species that is widely thought to have been hybridized at some point, and some albopolosums out there are thought to be part Voggins. Voggins is actually a faster-growing spider, so who knows if that's not the reason why. Again, this is conjecture. I have no scientific proof. I'm not telling everybody their albos are hybrids, but I just I try to figure out reasons for things. If two people are keeping them in the same temperatures... Why is one growing so much faster than the other? Obviously, people grow faster, people grow larger, animals grow faster, larger, but it just seems like for some instances, the disparity in growth size or growth rate is just so much that you have to figure there's something going on. So maybe that's the case. But with the pulchra, it was a jet black. She showed me the little slings with a little mirror patch on the butt. Next thing you know it, it's got a little bit more hair. Next thing you know it, a little bigger. Then next thing you know it, the black's in and she's got her little black spider. I was floored. And then somebody else came with the same thing. So I do wonder is maybe there's a difference in the growth rates of them. Just a thought. It's not just the color of the spider when they get ready to pre-molt, but could there be a difference in growth rate? So I would wonder if anybody that has the older pulchra and listens to this podcast or has pulchra, I would love for updates. You know, this is just how I get information. The fun part about doing these podcasts and these videos is that it's not just me saying things. It's not just me looking at the you know one specimen or two specimens I have in my collection and trying to come up with conclusions. I can reach out and ask people. So how fast are your pokras growing? Do you guys that have adult supposed G pokras, and I just say suppose, I'm not saying that you don't have what you have, but that's this is the whole question of this podcast. What do we have here? Do your adult pokras appear gray when they're in pre-mold? Or do they appear brown? Do you have photos of them looking brown? I would love to get some pictures up here to kind of see what we're dealing with, to see what everybody has, especially for those of you that have the older specimens, because those are more likely to be the Uruguayan species. I think that's the way you say it. So please feel free to hit me up with anything you've got on your pulchras. How fast have they grown? What colors are they? What are the temperaments? Because I've heard some people that report that, you know, they have very skittish temperaments. And this is one that used to be referred to as the black lab of tarantulas. So it makes me wonder, could the Uruguayan species be the laid back ones? And could the actual G pulchra be a little more feisty? That's something that comes to mind. And again, I'm not saying this is the case. I want more information on it. I would love to be able to hear what people think about this, what you've kept. So how quickly did they grow? 
What are their temperaments, and have you noticed any differences in the colors before Primo? We can start there. There are ways to look them up through comparing tibial hooks. Mine does not have, I believe mine's a male, but it doesn't have the tibial hooks yet, so it'll be a while, the rate it's growing, before I can do that and compare it, probably after it passes, and I'll be able to look at it. I'm not sure if you can tell anything looking at the molts. I have to go look up and see if I can see a sexed female um, pulchra compared to a sexed female kirogai and see if there's any difference because that's a way you could tell. It's kind of what I did with my lazy adora that I thought were, you know, the wrong labeled the wrong species. I was able to look at those parts of spermatheca and kind of figure it out from there. But let me know. Give me some feedback because, again, this is something that happens quite a bit. You know, I just I've named three species here. I'm hoping I know there's somebody in the tarantula community. I'm not going to mention a name, but I'm going to approach and hopefully this individual will spend some time talking with me about this, either a pen and paper interview or even a real interview about some of the species that are thought to be misnamed in the hobby because I know it came up on a thread where people were talking, I believe, about Acanthoscuria and the Brocklehursti and Janiculata and somebody chimed in saying that this was actually a much more rampant problem. I'd love to hear about it. I mean, the big thing is I am a hobbyist and I think that's what people need to always keep in mind. I'm not... I don't have a degree in arachnology, although I'd love to take some classes eventually. It's, I teach, and that's not what I teach currently, and trying to work class time is going to be difficult. I just have a love for these animals. I do love teaching, so I like trying to take what I learn and passing it on, but I'm not an expert. I'm not a biologist or arachnologist. I do, uh, you know, one of the things that came up is somebody said, left a comment on my tarantula YouTube channel, and I, I, I think they were being genuine, but they could have just been making fun of me. Who knows? But they said, I'd love to see you out in the wild, you know, cataloging these guys or checking these guys out in the wild. And that's something that I would love to do eventually. I'm not a huge traveler. I'm kind of a homebody, but that would be amazing to see some of these guys in their natural surroundings. So that's why when people like Josh Oden chime in, who's actually seen these guys out, I listen because that's the real information I want to hear. I can talk about what they look like in little boxes of dirt in my house all day long, but that's not the same as what happens in the wild. That's information that's incredibly important to me. So hopefully what I'll be able to do is get somebody to chime in on this, somebody that knows what they're doing, somebody that's done the field research, and we could get some information because I would love to bring the hobby more into the scientific side of things. So we again alluded to this earlier, we get caught up in the fact we have our Facebook groups, we have our forums, we have our channels we like to watch. We get caught up in the fact that like we are the be-all and end-all as far as tarantulas are concerned. Because after all, who could you know be more important to tarantulas than the people who keep them and love them? But we're only a small facet of this. These guys are out in the wild. They're not getting studied enough. The people that do study them don't get enough credit as far as I'm concerned. So Hopefully somebody will be willing to talk to me. We can get some information, more information on these. Maybe somebody will hear this and be like, hey, I have some information on this and be able to talk because that would be one of my goals with this. It has been one of my goals with the podcast, especially to kind of get people on here that know a heck of a lot more about this stuff, you know, especially the scientific side of it, the taxonomy side of it than I do. That's where I get to learn. So everybody gets to have fun. Hopefully some of the stuff I say on here is educational and quite frankly I don't know if I could do this and continue to do this if I didn't feel like I was learning things all the time because that's fun for me as well so I guess my homework for lack of a better term for anybody listening that keeps a grandma stole polka is get me some information on it if you could if you could take a moment and respond to my Facebook page and we can talk about some of this later on because that's one thing I'd like to do too is make the Facebook a little more of just the interactive part of this podcast I don't post my videos up on it I don't I sometimes post my articles up on it 
it's, to be completely honest, I have so many different social media avenues that I'm trying to maintain and, and answer comments. I, you know, the other day I had 10 emails rapid fire right in a row, which is fine, but it takes time to get through these things that I don't have the time so much to do the socialization part of Facebook, but I would like to use it as kind of a springboard for the podcast because I think it's a great place to interact with people, have them respond to what they're hearing on here and be able to answer some questions to help me kind of come up with future podcasts. So Let's hear what you guys got. Do you have pulchras? How old are they? What size are they? What have been some of your observations on here? This is a good you know, opportunity for folks to help me out so I can get some more information on these. Again, it'll be a small sample of the hobby, but it's a lot more than just the small sling and the young adult I have in my collection. And Oh, and as for my young adult, I was kind of convinced that I had the Kirogai because there are some brown tones to it when it goes into Primo. Of course, today I went to take photos of him with a camera which is what you take photos with. That was a bit redundant. Went to go take photos of him with my phone, we'll say that, and it didn't show up the way I was seeing it under the light. So I don't know what's going on with that one. We'll have to figure that one out later on. So that'll about do it for this one. Hope you enjoyed it. As usual, you can visit me on thomasbigspiders.com, which, again, I have articles. I have a bunch of articles backlog that I have to get up. I just need the time to do it. Hopefully uh, Christmas break is coming up for me. I teach, and I'll have you know a week or so off, and I'll be able to get some of that done. You can also find me on YouTube on Tom's Big Spiders, or if you look up Tom Moran, the actual name that it's under is off of an old email. So if you ever think you're going to set up a YouTube channel at some point in your life, make sure you use an email that isn't embarrassingly stupid because I, there's, I can't figure out any way to change that in the URL. And, of course, I've got the podcast, and you can email me, all that good stuff. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this, and I will catch you all next time.